everyone, welcome again to Red Hacks, that show about being a lefty journalist in a neoliberal world. I am Joanna Ramiro, your loud and overly enthusiastic host. And in case you forgot, this show is hosted by the Politics Theory Other podcast. First of all, let me apologize for the long absence. If you're Red Hacks fiend and follow me on Twitter at Joanna Ramiro UK, you will know that Red Hacks has had to change its recording logistics and set up studios in both London and Manchester. Funds for this enterprise were low and we opted to go on a hiatus rather than lower the quality of our shows. And we were halfway into finishing our second studio when the coronavirus crisis hit. And since we're all cooped up at home with little to do but to listen to or record podcasts, we took the editorial decision to bring Red Hacks back. So here we are again, recording our interviews with the social distancing of many, many miles, our guests safely in their home, and me safely in mine. And before I introduce her, let me just remind you that to keep abreast of all things politics, theory, other, as well as to listen to every previous episode of Red Hacks, you should follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to the Spotify or SoundCloud channel at Paul theory other. And so without further ado, let me introduce to you today's guest. She has been trailblazing through the sports pages of some of Britain's biggest publications. It's sports journalist Suzanne Rack. Hello Suzanne, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm great. We're going to start this conversation as I usually like to start. I always preamble it this way, which is to ask you, how did you really get into journalism? So for the listeners, of course, I met Suzanne at one of our very first employments at the Morning Star. But yeah, if you, I don't know what you were doing before that. So if you told our listeners how you got into journalism in the first place. So it's a, a bit of an unusual route, particularly into sports journalism as well, because I actually studied architecture at university, had never ever thought of journalism as something that I would do particularly sports journalism I'd always loved football loved sport I'd read sports pages never ever thought about who wrote those sports pages or how they did it or that I could do that so from quite young I'd wanted to be an architect I went to university studied architecture got the architecture degree and spent a year working in the industry and it was about the same time as the financial crash so I graduated in 2009 so just after and literally went from the start of my course our lecturers were telling us oh this is great great time to be a architecture student you're all going to get jobs you're all guaranteed jobs the industry is booming and then when we were graduating it was like five percent of you will get jobs if you're lucky and I was lucky because I you know like I said I did work in the industry for a year but I kind of fell out of love with it a little bit the effects of the crisis meant that the projects were you know, kind of all done on the cheap, particularly the ones I liked doing, which were like public sector projects like, you know, social housing and schools and things like that. And it very much was like, how can we do this as cheaply as possible? So then from there, I started doing, I was like involved in lots of activism. I joined the Socialist Party. I was like working for them a bit, doing lots of their design work on various youth campaigns that they're working on free education that kind of stuff and then when I kind of sort of was looking for something else the job came up at the morning star as a sub-editor and I'd never done any sub-editing before I studied architecture university so I hadn't done any really kind of English or anything like that apart from a level but because I could design because I could use InDesign they were like we can teach you to sub we like the fact that you can design that's the harder part to teach so went there and that's where I met you and worked as a sub-editor for a while they let me do some sports Kadeem the sports editor got me going to games and then that's sort of when I fell in love with it 
and then there was a you know a point at which I was like right what do I want to do with my career because I sort of kind of had fallen into everything from that point and the thing that I'd enjoyed most was covering sports so then I sort of kind of made a conscious effort to go out and network uh, kind of getting into sports journalism events like pitching around to various places applying for jobs at different newspapers and things trying to get into sport and got freelance shifts at Guardian and then some work with Trinity Mirror as well and took the jump into freelance and kind of yeah haven't looked back from there really so it's quite a strange route mainly through design into newspaper design and then into sport but um yeah I just like I wish someone had kind of picked me up when I was a kid and said this is a career possibility this is something that you guys can do because I just never ever would have kind of thought about it and probably you know could have got into it a lot sooner if I had kind of realized it was something that people did because this is sports and, and football in particular is clearly a passion of yours. I remember when we were working on the desks in, in the newsroom of the Morning Star, uh, overhearing your conversations, I uh, completely zero as far as sports are concerned, overhearing you and, and, and Kadeem Simmons and a few other uh, colleagues discussing recent matches and results and so on. And also overhearing you talk about how it, it was a part of your life. So if you could describe a little bit how, before we go into the more journalistic side of it, how sports and football in particular, and your politics actually also combined. So how do you see those two overlapping before you actually were able to even join this third sort of vector of, of, of your career into it? Yeah, I suppose the, the interest, I like having been political and like, as I like to think a socialist, socially conscious like human being, you like you're kind of constantly aware of inequalities and things. And in sport, it was no different. I suppose even from a very very early age, the fact that I knew that my dad had grown up going to watch Arsenal every single week, home and away, and was doing it really really cheaply, and I could barely afford to go kind of once a year at most. And even if I could afford to go. It was, you know, how do you get a ticket, that kind of stuff. And then once you're in the ground, how expensive the food is and stuff like that. So you kind of become immediately aware about how how football has changed and that that this isn't OK and that it's starting to climb away from being a working class sport, a sport that is has sort of been birthed from communities. And for me, that's the interesting part. That's the part I like to write about and and explore is that there's this in- incredibly powerful beast <laughs> particularly football that just commands so much money and influence worldwide you think about fifa and the fact that you know in, in many countries you you could say that people pay more attention to their football teams and what their football teams are saying than their governments or their political parties or care more about them like you know, it's it's not an exaggeration to say that because they're just you know, in fact people are so so tied to these clubs that they've grown up supporting that provide some of them the only emotional release that they will necessarily, you know, particularly for young men, get on a week by week basis. And so yeah, I've always been interested in like the the power of that and being able to use sports to raise social issues and get people thinking more broadly about about society generally I think is really useful and obviously that like this pandemic this current coronavirus pandemic is I think really really going to put sport 
quite sharply into focus a little bit more because if ever there was a time where what is important in society at root is like really really vividly shown it's now and you know what is more important to society the the bin man paid less than a living wage or the footballer currently working out in their lush private gym at home raking in millions by the by the minute in some cases and just think that we're we're going to look back on this hopefully once we're out the other side of it with a little bit more of an eye to football's place in the world and where we see it but also the fact that I think anyone who kind of follows sport or football to any degree is really like noticing the absence of it and I think whilst it is putting sport in the context of the world and the importance uh, like relative to everything else it is also showing people just how much it means to them as well I mean someone said to me yesterday oh it's it's only been a week since games were cancelled I was like you're joking me it feels like it's been months when is it coming back I really need it back because it does do you feel this reflects something as well about the way in which I mean the sport has been organized or is currently being organized particularly in terms of of obviously men's football and we haven't even gotten into women's football which obviously you are in my view of things an expert on and the expert on even in my world certainly so just in terms of how the 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 sport is organized at the moment a series of championships have been cancelled delayed and so on at this point do you feel then since we've jumped already into this point of the conversation do you feel that the the current crisis from your perspective as a journalist is pushing the sport to go back to its root or at least to question the way in which it has been organized i think it definitely is i mean it's uh, it's been really interesting watching the response to the crisis and it's sort of been very very chaotic club by club player by player sort of deciding how they're gonna deal with it the fact that that you know kind of we're, we're still waiting for the international olympic committee to properly postpone the olympics is quite scary really and then you've got the football association here and other football associations and the international tennis federation and things like that all postponing stuff but then what dictates when things come back is really interesting like the premier league obviously there's huge amounts of money involved and the consequences of when they bring football back if they restart the league or if they cancel the league is is massive financially so if they null and voided the the premier league then you could get clubs potentially suing for loss of income because liverpool would get so much money for winning the league they'd their sponsorship deals would change you know it transform them they'd be in the champions league you'd have the teams that may have got into the champions league and wouldn't necessarily expected it suing because their opportunity to do that has taken away. You've got teams that may or may not have been relegated suing because they would have got the windfall of having been stayed up or not, or like wouldn't, or or the clubs below that wouldn't have um, been promoted as a result and be suing on that basis. And like, there's such huge implications to, to games being completely cancelled because of the kind of multi-million pounds TV deals and stuff um, not not being like taken to their fruition. So all of those things mean that there's there's such massive implications to the game being called off. But yet at the same time, you've got the social 
crisis that means that you cannot play those games at the moment. So there's frustrations that those games are being delayed, but then there's frustration that leagues and clubs are even considering restarting or even trying to timetable a start date and even talking about starting them and just playing them behind closed doors regardless because they're worried about the financial implications of, of calling it off. You can totally see why people would be really, really annoyed at the idea that they might try and persevere regardless, you know, risk to the health of the players and some of the staff and the officials and things like that, even if fans aren't, can't go along purely because financially they can't afford to lose out anymore. Like, if we're making schools and things shut down, why should football restart? And it's, yeah, it's just, it is like shining a light on the priorities of of clubs, of the like sporting authorities and things like that, where their one motivation is protecting their profits, which why is it okay for every other industry in society to have to lose out, but football can't? If we pick on that on that point of the profitability of the sport and, and its motivations at this point, and we go back to what then brought you onto sports journalism and how you and your work have been trying to turn that on its head in a way very often in terms of profitability in terms of who is seen and who isn't seen if you tell me about how obviously it's very clear that that football is is your passion but how you also ended up doing a lot of women's football was this and obviously I am trying to I, I must say I'm skirting around the questions that almost prefiguratively put sexism at the core but do you feel like you ended up doing a lot of women's football because there was a space you were allowed to to go into or because of your politics as well you felt this is a very overlooked area of the sport in that case I feel like you you came in at the right time because suddenly people are finally looking a bit more at women's women's football yeah I think it's a little bit of both because the growth of women's football like generally has meant that the timing of me being involved in it has been really really good and that there's a lot more job opportunities because people sort of I say people news organizations and sports organizations sort of feel a little bit of a social responsibility and pressure to be covering more women's sport generally so in an industry where particularly in print jobs are kind of across the industry really really tight the idea that you've then got this one little pocket of growth which is women's sport which most of the existing journalists in the business won't cover and you have to bring in new people means that it is sort of just this one little pocket of growth so I've been kind of lucky in that respect at the same time I I, I had always covered both both men and women's sports, science, always taken an interest in women's football, partly because I was very lucky in that I grew up as an Arsenal fan and Arsenal women have always been the best team, the one to watch, were always there on a bus behind the men's bus uh, with their trophies at parades and things like that. And they actually trained very early on in the park opposite my council estate and things. So they were always there. So I always had the presence of women's football in my life from when I was like three or four years old so so I'd always taken an interest but I my focus was men's sport and men's football and that's what I started covering but then kind of as I was doing that I sort of felt a little bit more in love with the women's game purely from um partly the point of view of it being something to champion but also the fact that it is just still maintains a little bit of a connection to fans and local communities that 
big men's teams have sort of like lost touch with a little bit. You know, it's much more affordable. I could take my kids. He can run on the on the terraces with a drink and a cup of chips. He's not being made to sit still. I've not paid a fortune for him to get in. And it's just a, like a bit of a more, he, you know, he can get signatures of players and high five them at full time and things like that. And it's just a bit more of a like socially interactive environment. But then, so how I ended up covering it full time was initially the Guardian were looking for um, someone to cover women's football on like a weekly basis to sort of weekly column on it. And I had written bits for the Morning Star on women's football, uh, like when Kelly Smith retired, who was a bit of a hero of mine, England's England women's top scorer. I did a bit of a, a piece on that, like a feature, and then I covered her retirement game and had covered the odds, like big fixture here and there for the Morning Star. And then when The Guardian were looking, Anna Kessel, who then worked at The Guardian and is now at The Telegraph, she had been reading some of my stuff. And recommending me for it and was like, you've already got Susie working on your subs desk doing layout. She's writing all this great stuff, the Morning Star. You should get her in to do this when they asked her if she could recommend someone. So I kind of owe it to her quite a lot that she sort of recommended me. And then that's how I kind of sort of started to specialise more directly in just women's football in that, like, I wanted to do a good job at that and it it meant that kind of all my energies and focus and attention switched pretty much solely onto women's sport because it's just so hard particularly when you've got a young family to give up an entire weekend say to men's football on the Saturday women's football on the Sunday and then trying to follow it to the two strands alongside like working still on desks doing editing doing layout all of that kind of stuff just meant that it made sense to kind of lose one by the same time I think I, I wouldn't say it was sexism that that kind of necessarily kind of saw me kind of pigeonholed into into it because I, I did sort of embrace it and like I really like covering it but I'd say that for a woman getting into sports journalism at the moment it is definitely easier if you kind of work hard and push on the right doors and are good at what you do because the industry is sort of going through a little bit of a period of reflection in the kind of past couple of years and very much recognises that it's sort of very very white and very very male and so when the jobs do come up I think you're like if you are from a black or ethnic minority background or a woman you're more likely to get an interview on that basis I mean you've still got to then be good enough to do the job and at the interview to show that you can do the job but I think that the doors do open a little bit easy a little bit more easy easily at the moment for that reason and I think that's not from a a profiling point of view or anything like that I think it's from a, a point of view of news outlets media outlets recognizing that there is a massive benefit to having a much more diverse sports desk and often the case is that the rest of the business is much more diverse than the sports desk so like at the guardian the sports desk is definitely the weakest for like gender balance even though we've got a fairly fairly decent number of kind of production staff in particular that are women working on the desk it's nowhere near as good as other parts of the business like news features all that kind of stuff so yeah I think it's sort of a good thing that the industry is reflecting if very 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 overdue <laughs> it's funny you talk about this because it, it leads 
perfectly into my next point, which was being that you have experience covering both men's and women's sports, and in particular, again, men's and, and women's football, you obviously one of the pieces I've I've enjoyed the most, perhaps because I, again, as someone who's completely lay on this topic, the most I follow women's sports and certainly women's uh, football was with the World Cup. And and you interviewed Megan Rapinoe last December, or at least the interview came out last December. And I, I really enjoyed the interview, but in part, it, it one of the things that popped out to me or it stood out was the fact that it was such a political interview both from your questions but also from Megan Rapinoe's answers and for for yeah. the listeners who don't know who Megan Rapinoe is I feel like all of a sudden I should explain she's the captain of the U.S. Uh, soccer team or football team a women's football team and it made me think how apolitical in in many respects and i suspect purposefully so men's football has become not that that's its history from all i know and it reminded me as well of a, an instance a few uh, years ago when i went to a football game unprecedented <laughs> went to a football game and wanted to take one of those refugees welcome here kind of a placard with me and i was told that you know it had to stay at the door i couldn't go in to the stadium this was back in portugal but similar instances have been reported to me from different places. So do you feel that in part because this is an area of the sport that has been overlooked because it has to do with women and because there's been so much within uh, certainly American sport at this point to politicize it from Kaepernick to to Megan Rapinoe over uh, so from Black Lives Matter to the question of, of difference, differentials in pay between men and women in sport. Do you feel that all of a sudden there is a there is a politicization of sport and in particular women's sport compared to men's sport? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one of the, the bits that sets women's sport apart from men's is that struggle for women athletes to just play the sport in the first place. So in a lot of cases, women athletes are... I say this in the in the nicest possible way are a lot more thinking than male athletes, particularly in football, where you've got <laughs> women that have had to study and work to be able to play. Whereas, you know, if you make it as an elite men's athlete, you've often dropped out of school really, really young or have switched to just doing kind of BTECs in sports science or whatever it may be to prioritise playing because, you know, you can make a decent living at the very least out of playing football whereas for women it's not like that they've had to kind of get degrees and masters and things like that alongside they've had to be teachers or or whatever it may be to kind of make ends meet so it's a more thinking layer generally which makes it kind of more political because they just are sort of more socially rooted generally there are like the odd male athlete here and there that is willing to speak out but they often do so at the risk of you know irritating sponsors and clubs and they don't like to rock the boat for that reason you know like look at Colin Kaepernick who the American football player who basically hasn't played uh, played a game since he was set free by the 49ers after taking a knee during the national anthem so yeah he's borne the brunt of kind of speaking out and being politically active you've got a few who kind of are like you know obviously Raheem Sterling has spoken out on racism and things like that but they're almost like the safe subjects to talk about 
like you say, you've got Megan Rapino, who is willing to tell us who she's backing for the presidential candidate in elections, is willing to attack Trump in the press, is willing to kind of be very, very vocal on equal pay and equal rights and go up against her own federation in doing that, partly because because she can. I mean, like she's she'd be the first to say it in that she's in a privileged position because she's a two-time world champion, is playing some of the best football of her career, is coming towards the end of her career at 34 and is has the sort of the tide of social thinking kind of with her. So she's in a position where to disagree with what she's saying is is quite, quite difficult for any organisation, any sponsor or anything like that. So she is making the most of it in the best possible way. Do you think this is also opening women's football because it has had this politics imbued to it over the last couple of years or so, certainly since obviously the the World Cup, opening the sport to a different audience as well, a more political audience too? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think people are attracted by the fact that she is outspoken, that the US women's national team are fighting for equal pay, that the Irish national team like threatens to boycott a game over having to kind of get changed in airport toilets and things like that. Like, I think all of those things like attract uh, the eyes of a political, socially conscious layer towards the game. And that definitely helps. But the biggest thing is that these are women that have had to fight for one of the most basic rights, the rights to be physically active in a way that they that they want to be, which is just by playing football or playing tennis or whatever it may be. Football being a very, very male-dominated world, meaning that it's more, even more of a battle to be able to do it, to be able to get onto pitches, to be allowed to play with boys until you're 13, 14, but then to be allowed to join a women's team, to be allowed to do that without being abused when you're stepping out onto the pitch by the boy or men's team that's on the next door pitch and when I say abused I mean like mocked and things like that to be able to to be able to find a kit that actually fits you it's only last year for the world cup that we had kits designed for the first ever time to fit the women's players bodies uh you know they just wore small men's kits you know there's this phrase called pink it and shrink it and that is essentially what happens to to kits and to football boots there's no football boots that are designed especially for women apart from by a few small companies that are kind of trying to pioneer that that little trail so like every single battle that you have as a woman playing football is like you have to be committed to it you have to sort of like believe in it believe in your right to play it whereas if you're a guy that has always played football there's never been any barriers to you playing football Where's the incentive to link that in any way, even subconsciously, to like other struggles that may go on in the world? Whereas if you're a woman footballer that's used to struggling, the idea that you you know you watch a single mum struggling on universal credit, or you or you see you know a nurse having to work overtime every night of the week or wherever it may be to make ends meet, it's an easily transferable situation because you've probably had to work in some way and then go to training into late into the evenings because, oh, the boys train first, so you can train after the boys and things like that. So it's not hard to make that sort of conscious or even subconscious leap between struggles faced by people on a day-to-day basis and 
huge, huge struggle you've had just to play in the first place. I mean, the question then obviously stands to reason that I would ask you, do you feel that you're also allowed as a journalist to be more political when you're writing about women's football than when you're writing about men's football or men's sports versus women's sports? Um, I've got the bonus in that I've always worked for places that really embrace the social political side of of sport generally. So obviously the Morning Star does and the Guardian like much prefers that kind of stuff over sort of tabloid news to, to do with football and things as well. So like I'm sort of in a not only unique position because there's a few people that obviously work for those same organisations but like I've never had to work for like the Mail or the Sun or the Times or anything on sport where touching those kind of issues is obviously probably complicated by who owns those papers and the kind of messaging that from a political point of view they want to be putting out so I've always been able to do both from that point of view which is is great best thing is is that on the women's side I was going to say on the women's side, there's more of those stories. But actually, when you think about the corruption, the the big money going into Man City and things from the Middle East and into Arsenal and all the various big kind of states that have almost bought football clubs, there's so many political stories in men's football too, from the top of FIFA corruption to grassroots and kids being able to have access to decent playing fields but they can't because government government cuts have meant that playing fields have had to close or having to charge too much and things like that so there, there, there are all those stories on the men's side too the women's side you've just got the additional sort of effect on players at the elite level of like like I say having to pay to play essentially for so much of their careers and now just sort of scraping a very very basic living but still having to plan for the future on top of that because it won't sustain them in the long term and stuff so yeah I was probably wrong to even begin to say that it's there's more stories in the women's game because there's not there's just shed loads in both but yeah they're the, it's, they're the best things to cover for me because I think ultimately they're the I like covering them because they they get people talking about sport in a way that's much more relatable and thinking about things more broadly than sport it's a way of appealing to people in a place where they feel like they know it and have ownership of it and just kind of opening them up to to the broader discussions about how that relates to things in society more generally which is the the kind of thing that I like about covering it and on that note what is next for Suzanne Rack then what 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 are you looking I mean Especially given the coronavirus crisis and and the sort of state of suspension we find ourselves in, have you been uh, spending the time thinking about what what new challenges, what's next for you? Yeah, it's a weird time trying to cover sport with no sport. It's uh, it's definitely strange because I was supposed to be going to Paris for the Women's Champions League semi-finals, to Vienna for the women's champions league final to, i'm supposed to be going to the olympics in japan which i'm assuming are going to get eventually called off so yeah it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of different stuff and looking for the stories from home that are interesting the player profiles that have value and stuff but also i'm writing a book so i've got a little bit of time to work on that where it's sort of been a bit neglected by the extreme pace of games every week or twice a week or sometimes three times a week so 
I've got a little bit of time to kind of focus on some of the history of the game for this book, which is sort of going to be a social, political history of women's football. Oh, well, there so you go. So that's the main focus. Yeah. Right, bang on the topic. Yeah. So it's sort of going to be a lot of time, I'm hoping, to work on that. Although there's still stories. Chelsea signed a player. Chelsea women signed a player today. And there's still things knocking around to pick up on. So it's balancing those again. So last question I always ask, and perhaps at this point in time, I might have many answers. I don't know. What are you reading? I have just finished, literally this morning, a really, really brilliant book by an American journalist called Abigail Pester. And the book's called The Girls. And it's she's done a book on the Larry Nasser abuse case of gymnasts mm-hmm. in the US. Yep. And it is, I it like, obviously an incredibly harrowing book because it tells the story of those girls abuse in quite horrific detail but it's like she's journalists that cut like covered the story really extensively at the time built up really really strong relationships with the athletes and they've really really trusted her to tell their story and it's incredibly movingly written and delicately written and is like i cannot recommend it enough it's such a good book fantastic thank you so much Suzanne. this was amazing this is great yeah it's good fun I am Joanna Romero, and this was Red Hacks, a show about being a lefting journalist in a neoliberal world hosted by Politics Theory Other. If you like what you've heard, please don't forget to subscribe to Politics Theory Other on iTunes and leave a review. And if you want to support Politics Theory Other, please consider becoming one of our patrons for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2 at patreon.com forward slash Paul Theory Other.